I'm Charles Davidson. We're going to get started even though, I mean, we're a little late and people are still straggling in and we have metro, we have rain. Uh, so thank you all for, for showing up and I think you'll find this to be an interesting morning. I usually give rousing intros to our events, um, but in this case we want the kleptocracy archive to speak for itself really. Um, but on Hudson, I do have to impose our slogan, which we have uh, changed. It's shorter than last year. And uh, it, we are dedicated to promoting American leadership and engagement, leadership and engagement for a secure, free, and democratic world. Now, um, I'm going to give a very brief intro to the kleptocracy initiative. We have many friends here, and many of you uh, are familiar with what we're doing. This project has been long in gestation, well over a year. But for the kleptocracy initiative overall, our focus is national security and that of our allies. We're not about social justice. We're not about saving poor countries and uh, uh, undeveloped continents. Uh, not that we don't care about that, but this is a national security program. And obviously, if something is done about some of the national security issues we face in this regard, there will be um, ancillary benefits, we feel. Uh, and, and the crux of it, of what we're doing, is we think the immense financial leverage we have over kleptocratic regimes can be used. Currently, it isn't used at all. So we believe that the punch bowl should be taken away. We should stop providing safe havens for kleptocrats' assets. Stop providing them with financial secrecy, access to our institutions, and use of our rule of law and legal systems. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Julie Davidson, our director, who has managed this uh, archive project from A to Z. And I'd also like to say that um, the origina originator of the project isn't here. He was supposed to be here, but he had to leave on a business trip at the last minute, Glenn Simpson, who used to be with the Wall Street Journal and now has his own private investigative firm as of six or eight years. But I knew Glenn well going, going way back. And when we started the Kleptocracy Initiative a couple of years ago, we ran into Glenn. And Glenn said, well, you know, I've got all this great material, primary source material. I'd love to see some of it get out there. And that was the genesis of the project. And then one thing led to another. Ken Weinstein, the president of Hudson, said at a very early stage of what we were doing that he thought this might be the most important thing we were doing. Well, it certainly sucked up the most uh, time and the most resource of anything else that we're doing or have done up until now. So Julie Davidson. There we are. Um, and I know you're all here really to see the archive and the material. So I'm going to go very quickly through an overview of what it is you're going to see and how we've thought about it uh, architecturally and strategically. 
When we created the archive, working initially with Glenn, what we were thinking about was creating a new tool because kleptocracy is a new field and it's a new way of thinking. And so our goal was to create something, to assemble something that was simple and organized uh, and to assemble information in a way that was going to be easy for anybody accessing it to find what they were looking for. It is, unlike many archives, it is free. It is online as of 11 o'clock this morning. Anybody in the world can access it. And because it's an international tool, you're going to discover that it's in many languages. And these, the number of languages are growing. Right now we have Russian, Ukrainian, virtually every Romance language, and we're about to add Arabic and Hebrew into the mix, um, which is going to give you a sense of how international this flow is, even though the documents you're going to see today are coming primarily from Russia and Ukraine. Um, with that, we have a staff, I should note, that speaks fluently uh, 10 languages right now, small group, talented. Um, next slide. So our challenge, I think the Panama Papers has really done its job uh, explaining the challenges of tracking the flow of money out of regimes into the West. Um, the kleptocracy archive is different from the Panama Papers in the sense that we are looking specifically at the flow of money from kleptocratic regimes and those individuals associated with it. You won't just find uh, everyday corruption, which will exist till the end of time, um, in our papers. We've vetted this. But this includes looking deeply at Western money and the Western influence. How does the money get here? It does not just magically appear in our banks, in our real estate, on our shores. There are enablers, facilitators who help to usher it in, and we are taking a deep look at that. Um, the other thing I'd like to mention is that this archive is not an archive in the traditional sense. This is not just looking back historically. This is a living, breathing document. Every day we're getting new material, and we are, to the extent possible, through our international sources, following the news cycle. So you will see us constantly updated with new material. Next slide. Our users are very obvious here. Um, but what I want to emphasize is how we designed the site for our users, because the design was looking at the researchers and the journalists, really, who were going to be using this initially. And this was led by David Satter, whom you're going to hear more from shortly. But the question David posed was, if you're a researcher, if you're a journalist with less and less time to do this type of very difficult research, what type of architecture on a site do you need? And it led us to a navigation and an organization that is very easy, simple, and it's uniform. You're not, you're going to go to every page and see exactly the same thing and exactly the same way to get in it. So your time is not going to be spent trying to search through the site. It's going to be spent doing the research you need to do. And that was uh, first and foremost for us. Talking about our structure, um, the documents you're going to see today, as I've mentioned, are primarily individuals from Russia and Ukraine, although that will increase. The countries will expand as we go along, um, and you'll see that expansion very quickly. 
The site is structured around individuals of interest. And when we say individuals of interest, we don't just mean kleptocrats. We mean people caught up in the kleptocratic system in some way. Um, and certainly Mr. Litvinenko is a great example of, a stellar example of somebody who was caught and a victim of the system. Every individual has a bio that has been written in a neutral form, has been very carefully sourced, and you will see all the sources in there. What you'll then do, and you'll see in a moment, is you will go into a scroll of documents, and the documents will pertain directly to what you see in the bio. And what we've done in the archive is we have curated every single document, so it has been categorized where it belongs historically. Um, and I just want to point out legal proceedings in the, in the archive because it's a, it is a very important point. If you are looking for legal cases in the U.S., particularly, but also in the U.K., while they are available publicly, they are very difficult to find. You will need to know the specific name of the case. You may need to know the jurisdiction. And they can be costly to download. We've done that work for you. We have over, well over 100 cases in there. Some of these cases, though, can run 800 pages. So what you'll also find in the archive are legal summaries, one to two page summaries that explain what the case is about. Uh, they explain the jurisdictional justification. Why could two people from Ukraine sue in a New York court? Sometimes surprising reasons. Uh, but that, in effect, allows you, in terms of your research, not to have to, weed not to, have to read through 500 pages. You can determine quickly whether or not this is something you want to pursue with your time. The archive today, when we release it, will have 3,000 documents. We have 25,000 additional documents that we are going through right now. So um, an enormous cache of things that you will see shortly. Everything that's posted comes from our own research. Uh, and from trusted international sources. And when we do receive something from outside, we vet it very carefully. If there are any questions, it will not be put on the archive until we can determine to the best of our abilities that it is, in fact, authentic. We have also created on the site an area where sources, where materials from sources can be submitted, and it's up to three gig worth of materials. Uh, but we believe that crowdsourcing is really going to be a major way to make this archive work and to grow. Uh, we already know of people who have materials they'd like to submit to us in this manner. And finally, I just would like to talk about security because we've had many questions about this, and this was really one of the first great obstacles we faced. How could we create an archive where the documents couldn't be hacked, couldn't be tampered with, and maintain the safety of our sources? Uh, what we were fortunate to find was a site called Document Cloud, which is sponsored by the Investigative Reporters and Editors, or IRE. And Document Cloud has been funded by the Knight Foundation, and it is dedicated solely to protecting the work of investigative journalists, their source material. Um, and they have given us space on here and what it means is when you see a document on our website, it's not really there. You are actually going to another site we are, it, that's embedded in our site that is as protected as anything could possibly be. So if our site should go down, we'll be back. 
uh, and the documents are not gone. We also, when we receive documents, they are what's called sandbox. They're put to the side. They are scrubbed for any malware, so we don't have any viruses affecting everything else. And all our material is scrubbed before it goes online, which means, for those of you who don't know what this is, it means that any time you have a document and send it, all of your data is in there, your computer, your address, the time you've sent it, your name may be there. We take all of that out so that our sources are protected by anybody who is looking at the material which, um, as most of you probably know, is really critical in this day and age. So having said all of this and giving you a quick overview, what I'd like to do is introduce Peter Podkopayev, who has managed our archive. Uh, this man is really a national treasure. I think he knows every single document. In fact, I know he knows every single document in the archive and what it contains. And he's going to take you first just on a brief tour of the range of materials, and then secondly on a quick tour of the archive so you can see the navigation. Thank you. As Julie mentioned, I would like to give you a quick tour of some of the interesting documents that we all find very interesting in the archive. These first two documents are a German intelligence report and a legal document. I'll start with the German intelligence report. It is the investigation on Rudolf Ritter, who is a banker in Liechtenstein, or was a banker. He was involved with SPOG, and what the BND, the intelligence service, wanted to know was this connection between SPOG and money laundering. They found some links. And what was really particularly of major interest here is that they found a link or a potential link to SPOG and the Colombian drug cartel. Why this is interesting is because Putin had shares in SPOG and was formerly the advisor to this company. In this other document here, you can see him signing over or giving power of attorney, more specifically, of 200 shares in SPOG to Vladimir Smirnov. In the next slide, you can see who Smirnov was. He was the director on paper of the Ozera Dacha Cooperative, of which many important individuals were also members. These individuals are Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Yukunin, Yuri Kovalchuk, and Nikolai Shamalov. These are the who's who of contemporary Russia. All of their names are highlighted or circled, boxed in red. As they moved up in the world, Smirnov did too, let's not forget him. He then headed 10X, which was an exporter of nuclear material, and the company that participated in the megatons to megawatts program with the United States. This is the Spanish prosecution report of Russian organized crime in Spain, colloquially known as the Grinder Report. The report focuses on two gains, or they call it Malashevskaya Tambovskaya gain in particular. What's really fascinating about this document is that the members of the organized crime organizations were in direct contact and communication with um, Russian politicians and businessmen, high-ranking politicians, for example, like Vladislav Reznik. What's really fascinating is that they took, or made it seem like, according to this report, that the criminals were the superiors and the politicians were the inferiors. So you decide who's really in charge. In the following document, you can see this is the arrest warrant from the Spanish prosecution. It came out quite recently. We're staying on top of the news cycle, and so do our experts. 
This document now is saying Resnick, again, in red, is wanted by the Spanish authorities. Resnick has also had connections to Bank Rocia, which is really important bank to understand in the Putin's regime. And his wife, uh, the bank was sanctioned, by the way, by the Treasury Department. His wife, who is an American citizen, Diana Ginden or Jinden, we're not sure how to pronounce her last name, is also now wanted by Spanish authorities. In the next slide, I'd like to point out a very interesting intelligence report. I could probably talk for an hour about this, and I'm not going to, unfortunately. You can go into the archive when it goes live and look, explore it on your own. Unfortunately, the report is in rather poor quality. However, we have it transcribed into Russian. I'd like to focus just on two points about this report in particular. It mentions a bank. They denoted Bank D. They never state what the name of the bank is. It was set up with the funds from the KGB, and the director of the bank was uh, security services, intelligence services operative. The bank allegedly laundered money from criminal activities and had presence in Switzerland. The individual who ran this bank was on the FBI top 10 most wanted list up until December 2015. That individual is Simeon Mogilevich. Another point they make about Simeon Mogilevich in this report is that he was personally present at the negotiations between Ukraine and Russia over gas supply. So let me remind you, this is state-to-state -state negotiations that we have an FBI top 10 most wanted criminal present, physically present. Let me explain you a little bit more about this ordeal. This is a WikiLeaks cable, another type of document we have in the archive, of Dmitro Firtash, who is a Ukrainian oligarch, also wanted by the US authorities, um, coming and speaking to the United States government. And he goes on records here saying that he needed, and we highlighted this quote for you. I'm not sure if you can see it. So I'll just read He acknowledged ties to Russian organized crime he, that's Dmitry Firtash, Simon Mogilevich, stating he needed Mogilevich's approval to get into business in the first place. Firtash was the middleman in his company, RUE, Ross, Uker, Energo, for facilitating gas transit between Russia and Ukraine. Let's dig into this issue a little more as the Australian police, not Austrian, Austrian police, sorry about that. Did the, the police examined the relationship between Firtash and Mogilevich, and what they found and the ledge is that really who ran the business, it was Mogilevich, and Firtash was just the director of the company that facilitated the gas trade. Let's move away a little bit from this issue to uh, questioning of a man named Jalal Haidarov. This is also a very, very lengthy document, and it tells a very convoluted story and quite complex of, according to Haidarov, he was in business with Oleg Deripaska, Iskandar Mahmudov, and Anton Malovsky. In this complicated business affair, what we unearthed from this document is that he alleges that Deripaska had connections to these Malovsky gang and organized crime, among other things. And we encourage you to explore all these complex relationships and connections on your own in the archive. Julie mentioned earlier that we have many legal cases this is an example of a US legal case, SpaceX suing the uh, United States government. They're suing the government for unfair competition issue. But the real crux of the matter here that I would like to point out is that our government was purchasing rockets from a company, Energomash, which is connected to Dmitry Ragozin and other individuals. Dmitry Ragozin is sanctioned 
by the United States government. So this is clearly a national security issue. Our rock, their rockets, Russian rockets, are used to send our satellites into space. This is an example of a financial document. This is a wealth statement to Monsak Fonseca, which is part of the Panama leaks of the current Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko. This is part of many documents from Mossack Fonseca demonstrating that with their help, he set up an offshore entity. And according to news reports, he did this at the time when there was really heavy fighting in eastern Ukraine. I would like to conclude this brief presentation of the types of documents and their overview we have in the archive with what I think is the most interesting document that we have in the archive. This is a draft of the reform of the presidential administration. It was originally published in the Russian newspaper, Kommersant, and was shortly thereafter taken down. This is in English. We have translated the document. It's part of a much larger document that um, it's out there maybe somewhere. We don't have it. The original document is in Russian. We obviously have it as well. This is essentially an envisioning of what Putin's and current administration, what Russia should look like, written around the time he assumed power right before. What this document outlines is that there should be open and closed sections of the administration. And these sections, the closed sections are really where all the work takes place. And the open sections are really nice and public and they encourage democracy. However, the closed sections undermine things like free media, civil society, and control over political parties. 16 years later, we can probably see, or we can clearly see that, according to this document, that what they outlined has succeeded in Russia today. Now I would like to give you just a quick tour of the archive and give you a scope of a little more of how it actually works and what's in there. This is the homepage of the archives. You can see it's organized by individuals of interest. On the left, you have anyone we add or any entity who they are and their brief description of their bio. On the right, their news, any updates to the archive will be described there. So let's go into individuals. And before we go to anyone in particular, I would just like to point out, you can search by last name of individuals. They're organized by last name, filter by countries and by companies. And then can we just scroll through to give people just a quick view of how it looks. The first person I would like to point out to you in this, in our archive, is Valerio Marozov. In case you don't know who he is, I'll briefly explain why he's in the archive. He worked on a construction pro, uh, project in Sochi. He was shaken down, he lost a lot of money, and some of these documents on this issue are in the archive. But if, in case you didn't know this, you would see that there's a biography. Every individual has a bio. So you can briefly read this, get a sense of who this individual is, and see if you want to explore him further. So let's open, for example, his bios. All the documents are organized by topics in the folders. So you can unroll those, and all the documents are contained therein. So the documents on corruption will be in that really lengthy last name, uh, not last name, name the company I'm not going to bother you with right now. As you can see, they're all organized chronologically, which was David Satter's idea, and I think it's extremely helpful when you have a lot of documents to look through. Uh, let's show you something fun here, like the, there's a ledger of bribes, for example. 
Here they're outlined. Uh, with, with, so every document, some titles are long. In the right there, you can see what the full title is. And some of these documents can be in poor quality, especially if it's like a JPEG, someone took a photo. You can always open the document in PDF, and it will be usually in higher quality. And this is really useful because let's say you find a document you're really interested in, you can save it to your computer or wherever you want. And you don't have to go back to the archive and look for it again. As Julie mentioned earlier, we really believe in the potential of crowdsourcing to drive this project forward. And let's give you an example of that, how that works for a certain individual. That individual is Valentina Matvienko. She is involved in litigation that's ongoing. And that is Bank of St. Petersburg versus Arhangelsky. And you can see, if you go to the last page, the most recent document is a couple months old at this point. This is an example of what crowdsourcing can do for the archive as documents become available in an ongoing case, they can come to us. Let's show you how that would actually work. You would go on to click the Submit Documents tab. This is right now in English. However, you can change the language right up there to many other languages in case you're not familiar with English. Fill out the blank fields in there and attach document or documents you'd like to send to us and submit. So just to be clear, anyone in the world with an internet connection can do this. So I would like to invite you now at your leisure to look at, we have about a little over 800 documents on the man who's been on my mind and I hope on your mind as well, the Putin. President of Russia. So let's unroll the documents there. Also, I'd like to point out briefly, see there's related profiles on the right there. So any individuals that have connection between the documents we have in the archive will put up, it's called related profiles. That way you don't have to search for it on your own. You can just jump to the individual there. Thank you. It's a document, so. All right, we have microphone, okay. 
So, as you can see, we're missing Glenn Simpson, who is sort of at the origin of all of this. Um, uh, but that's, uh, that's fine. And what I think we'll do, we're going to leave 20 minutes at the end of this for Q&A. Um, and maybe even a little more than that if we run out of gas, we'll see. Uh, but uh, both <coughs> David Satter and Karen Duisha have been highly involved with the kleptocracy initiative overall and particularly in this project. And David has actually been working since the outset of this archive project about third time on this, something quarter, third, half time, something like that. Yeah. Well, and uh, and he's three quarters, three quarters time, <laughs> right. time and a half, whatever, whatever it is. And then Karen has been very involved in uh, everything we're doing, really. It seems. And Peter Podkopayev, whom you recently met, was a student of Karen. And as I understand it, what I what I'm told is he did uh, most of the translation and a lot of the research work and support work for Karen's book, Putin's Kleptocracy, which I think a lot of people in this room are familiar with. Uh, and uh, so without uh, David and Karen, the Kleptocracy Initiative overall would not be what it is. And in particular, this archive project wouldn't be at all what it is. So I think what we'll do is start with David and Karen. Uh, why don't we start with David, each talking about their role in the project. And then we'll get into some other uh, issues and just, uh, relatively quickly move uh, into a Q&A or into a dialogue really with, with you all. I mean, I, I see mostly friendly faces in the audience, which is, um, which is wonderful and actually quite uh, slightly unusual for some of our public events. It doesn't, I, I, uh, I don't see any scowling or hostility really there, so I'm quite reassured. Obviously, for this launch this morning, we, we didn't know exactly what to expect, so I feel very relaxed, at least right now. Uh, so, uh, David, and then, and then Karen, if you'll, if you'll uh, uh, take us through a visit of your roles in this, and then we'll move on to some of the more substantive, substantive issues behind all of this, and perhaps I'll relate it a little bit to what we're doing with the Kleptocracy Initiative in general. Thank you, Charles. Is the, I guess the mic is working, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, I uh, owe my connection to uh, the Kleptocracy Archive, Kleptocracy Initiative, to Kevin Close, who is in the audience and who is my longtime friend, there, and who introduced me to Charles. Uh, and he said that uh, there's this guy. Uh, Charles Davidson, who's doing something very remarkable, and you guys ought to meet, and we did. And I was living in London at the time. I've recently moved back to Washington, but I was in Washington for a, for a very brief visit. We met, and we began to discuss uh, how to structure such a, a massive amount of information. And... Uh, Julie was going to be in charge of it, and I've, I'm absolutely in awe of her ability to assimilate and become familiar with so much uh, information uh, about Russia and Ukraine, uh, having not necessarily specialized in that previously. But 
uh, the, there was still a problem, even with that kind of dedication and ability, uh, in making the archive accessible to people. And I, having written books, uh, understood how important it was that the research facilities themselves not pose a problem, that people have ready access to the materials without having to, to torture themselves with uh, finding what it was they were looking for. So we adopted basically two simple principles. We would organize the materials according to per individuals, and we would organize the documents within the categories uh, chronologically. Now it sounds obvious, but it's actually not that obvious until you think about it. And that's what we've done. The result should be that uh, researchers, uh, book authors, journalists, students, whoever it happens to be, will not have difficulty finding what they're looking for if they have certain basic facts, if they've got a name and a date. And uh, we also had to make this more than just a, a collection of documents. It had to have some structure from us. And that meant writing biographies, because in the process of writing biographies, we became familiar with all of the events in the lives of our heroes. And we could essentially create the subcategories that would be necessary for us when we began filing documents from the many sources that we're now in touch with. Uh, as a result, it's, it's, uh, it's my hope that this, um, this archive, which is completely free uh, and accessible in many different languages, we can search across many di different languages, and uh, is uh, going to aspire really uh, to be uh, a connecting link between investigators in many different countries will create the means for understanding the real situation in countries that are dominated by kleptocratic regimes. The countries of the former Soviet Union are the example par excellence, but there are uh, other countries in which the same phenomenon manifests itself, oftentimes with slightly different results. But uh, people will see the connections They'll understand that there are common tactics that can be employed in order to combat the corruption which emanates from these regimes and that really pollutes the atmosphere for everyone. And that, as we know, leads to more than just theft. It leads to murder. It leads to war. It leads to very serious crimes. We've seen this uh, in recent years uh, with, uh, with Russia and uh, in fact, it's the culmination of a long history. I was uh, recently reading the product of one of our, our brother think tanks, which I won't mention, uh, in which one of the leading people in that uh, organization was commenting on the problems in US-Russian relations. And he said, what it boils down to is that Putin and Obama can't stand each other that uh, Putin doesn't like Obama and has a tough time concealing it. Obama doesn't like Putin 
and behaves badly toward Putin, or at least is impolite toward him. Uh, and this is something which is actually not just uh, used to disinform the gullible Russian public, which is uh, in a controlled information environment, but it's fed uh, to the American public as well. It's fed to presidential candidates. It's fed uh, and accepted by them. It's uh, fed uh, through the respectable American media and the Western media generally. Well, we'd like to show, with the help of some of these documentations, that it isn't that it doesn't matter whether Putin likes Obama, Obama likes Putin, that there are objective reasons to uh, uh, dislike, limit, and combat these kleptocratic regimes. And in any case, one of the purposes of the archive is to provide the material so that not just scattered individuals, but practically anybody can demonstrate it. And to deprive those people who always claim ignorance, even though they, their ambitions uh, drive them to make policy, uh, to create a situation in which they can't pretend that they didn't know. So in any case, with that, I will turn over to my friend and colleague, Karen, to <laughs> to complete the explanation of what we've been doing. Well, first of all, uh, I remember m many years ago now, I think one of the very first people I met when I started writing my book on Putin's kleptocracy was David. And unlike other uh, journalists, he was very generous. <laughs> and. Uh, at that time, when I was writing the book, I also interviewed uh, many intelligence operatives, retired State Department people, or retired uh, Foreign Commonwealth Office people in UK and in the States. And some of them were very generous. But I have to say that one of the biggest problems I had was that both journalists and, of course, for different reasons, government people didn't share, uh, didn't really tell you where to go for documents, and certainly didn't give you documents. And if I had had this archive, I would have been able to do an even deeper dive into the problem, and I would have been able to have demonstrated with a much higher degree of certainty uh, the, the connections that I lay out in the book, always having to use the word alleged. Because <laughs> the, the, the proof really wasn't there. And so I, I'm really so happy for this day and very, was, have been very happy to be part of the project and to be on the advisory board. Um, and I'm very happy that Peter Putkapayev has been working here, and I've been seeing how this, this thing has, has been built and has, is being developed. And I would say, for me, I've you know, been able to beta test the archive, as, as has David. For me, the, the biggest takeaway is absolute proof of the symbiosis between Russian organized crime and the Kremlin, period. And this is in the archive. Uh, of course, one could talk about other countries and so forth, but you know, I'm interested in, in Russia, so I'll, I'll make no 
apologies for that. And what is really important for you to go and look at yourselves are the documents. What you have in the archive are documents from the FBI. You have documents from the Germans. You have documents from the Swiss. You have documents from the Austrians. And you have documents from the Spanish, all concluding this basic connection. So if you look, for example, at the FBI document, which is an early document, 90s document, pre-Putin, Putin isn't mentioned, on Mogilevich, somebody who is walking, not tiptoeing, striding through this archive. You see a document. You see their information, FBI information, about many, many times that Mogilevich is coming to the United States, about many times that he is having meetings in, uh, in Europe. And in one of these meetings, two, uh, this is before the FSB was formally called the FSB, two FSB colonels coming to uh, Europe and meeting with Mogilevich and someone he puts them in touch with, who was Israeli intelligence, giving information to the two colonels about how much money Chernomirdin was receiving, about the bribes to Chernomirdin. So here you have an uh, a KGB, FSB uh, operatives coming and gathering compromise, building the files for a sitting prime minister of Russia, and gathering it from organized crime, and not only. And I mention Israel just because this is another feature of, these, of this archive is the role of government officials and enablers in many countries. So you have an FBI document. You have then, moving into the Putin period, this very fascinating Swiss intelligence document that references not only their own conclusions, but also references uh, the conclusions of their colleagues in Germany about, and they use the actual word, word symbiosis between the Kremlin and organized crime. And they're operating on this absolute assumption. Uh, talking, uh, for example, about the presence of Mogilevich at the, at the gas negotiations between Russia and, and Ukraine, the physical presence, the physical presence of someone who is on the top 10 most wanted list of the FBI being present at an intergovernmental negotiation. And then you, you look at all the documents that are there on the Spanish case. Here you have an arrest warrant issued this month, or maybe last month now, uh, by the Spanish based on a almost 500-page uh, document issued by the prosecutor in Spain, Grinda, Jose Grinda Gonzalez, last December, uh, following uh, uh, the 2008, already a long time ago, arrest uh, of Russian organized crime figures in Spain. And you have 
the arrest warrant issued by a sitting judge in Spain on the basis of the evidence presented by a sitting prosecutor in Spain talking about the wiretaps, the actual wiretaps they have on Petrov, who is the head of the Tambov St. Petersburg Mafia, uh, talking about individuals, Reznik. Reznik was one of the founders of United Russia, <laughs> one of the founders of United Russia. He is a member of the Duma, and he is the head of the, the finance committee of the Duma, and he was the prime author of the Russian law to combat corruption. It's hilarious. That's Reznik. A warrant has been issued for his arrest. His wife, Diana Gendin, a American, Swiss, Russian national, who was head of uh, Credit Suisse in Moscow, as well as representing Bank of Boston, and represented their offices in Spain. She owns the top floor of the Ritz-Carlton in Bell, Bell Harbor, Miami. And her name is on the ownership documents. Arrest warrant. Sobolevsky, the deputy to Bastrykin, the head of uh, the investigative committee. Until the, he was the deputy to Bastrykin until 2008, when Troika came out. There are wiretaps of conversations with Sobolevsky. It, it just boggles the mind that somebody issues a statement that Putin and Obama don't get along because they have personality disorders of some kind. <laughs> Our government shouldn't be negotiating with people who are mentioned in wiretaps. Uh, General Aulov. Aulov is, was the deputy to the Minister of Interior in charge of the control of narcotics. He's on the wiretaps. So we have a big problem when you have people in this government, our government, who are assigned to negotiate DEA agreements, drug enforcement agreements, uh, Ministry of Interior agree uh, policing agreements, uh, all, these, all the, this web of interactions that we try to keep going in the midst of a decline in interstate relations. And yet the people who are in charge of these negotiations with the US government are themselves mobbed up. Vladimir Smirnov, who was mentioned, uh, started relations with Putin in the early 90s. And as uh, Peter said, was listed as the Rukovedidil, the, the leader of the Ozerodacha Cooperative. He was involved with bankruptcy from the very beginning. He was given the right to uh, vote the shares of the St. Petersburg government in SPAG, which was involved in drug laundering, uh, money laundering for the Cali cartel. 
in Germany. Smirnov, instead of being pushed to the side, becomes the head of the company, Tenex, in charge of uh, trade in one half of the world's visible material in, in 2000 under Putin. And it's not surprising, therefore, that you have a Swiss document, Swiss intelligence document, talking about how the mafia and allied with their people in the state are smuggling nuclear materials. It's, 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 a, it's a challenge of the absolute first order. First order. And the thing that these documents, and that's the last thing I'll say, the thing that these documents show incontrovertibly for anyone who now, can, all they have to do is push on a button and go to kleptocracyarchive.org and do the work, is that there is a symbiosis between Russian organized crime and the Kremlin, period. Thank you, Karen. Um, uh, and uh, this, this is all a, a little bit uh, sobering. Um, I just, very quick parenthesis, uh, this kleptocracy archive is not going to be just about Russia and Ukraine by any stretch of the imagination. Um, uh, without mentioning any countries by name, although if you look at our website and what we're doing generally, you will uh, glean very quickly what they might be. We're looking to expand it further. Initially, it was supposed to have more balance, but Ukraine is sort of the front. There are Ukrainian soldiers dying there almost every day, and it seems to be the uh, somewhat of a battleground between certain uh, notions of political organization, although we see that as Karen has, has, has uh, described, uh, there isn't really any ideology on the other side of the net. Perhaps there used to be, uh, but in, we're, we're just dealing with a, uh, really with a criminal organization. And policymakers really need to understand that and understand what they're dealing with. There is a big lag still in this town uh, amongst other think tanks and with a lot of policy professionals to fully come to terms with this. There are a lot of people who know this but don't want to come to terms with it. Uh, there are a lot of people who, have, who don't want to be bothered with it. And obviously, it's a sort of, it's, it's a somber reality that nobody really wants to have to deal with. But we can't, we can't choose the reality that's across the net at this point. It's, it's, uh, it's very clear. Now, before we, we involve you all, I think it would be interesting just uh, quickly for David to give us a few anecdotes about how some of this material has come to us, because he has been spent, spent time in Ukraine. Um, and there's, there's one, uh, maybe he, he could tell the, the story of Nastya Kirilenko, because it's David's initiatives in, trying, in, in searching for documents and contacts for the archive that led to uh, our screening of who is Mr. Putin recently, uh, with, which gives us the wonderful acronym of WIMP. Maybe David could just tell that story, and then we can move into, uh, into involving everyone in the conversation. Uh, OK, Charles. I, can, uh, I was an advisor uh, in Moscow to Radio Liberty uh, for three months before the Russian authorities expelled me. And uh, of course, I got to know some of the people who were working on uh, 
crime and corruption in the Moscow Bureau. And one of the persons who was doing the most was Anastasia Kirilenko, who has since moved to Paris. And uh, I, uh, I got Nastya to write an article uh, marking the 20th anniversary of Yeltsin's uh, attack on the Russian parliament in 1993. So I got to know her and uh, was impressed then at, by what a good investigator uh, she is. And in fact, in Russia, it's commonly uh, thought that, uh, um, certainly among the intelligentsia, that the repressive regime began with the uh, arrival in power of Vladimir Putin. But Nastya, who had been doing some serious investigation, knew what I, in fact, knew very well that it began in 1992, not with uh, Putin, but with Yeltsin. And uh, when I began working on this project with Charles and Julie, of course I wanted to recruit Nastya. And uh, she has and ha had uh, absolutely impeccable s sources. And we were able to contact many of these people and get them to share their materials. I can say that, for the most part, the people who we worked with fell in the generous category. There were those who were not generous and who actually uh, either promised to provide materials and didn't, or just said they wouldn't for one reason or another, or, or avoided an answer. Uh, it's true folly in a situation like this to try to be protective, careerist, or territorial when it comes to information about the criminal behavior of kleptocratic regimes, because it's only by sharing information that it's possible to understand their true nature. But in any case, uh, in addition to Nastya, uh, uh, I myself was contacted. After I was expelled from Russia, I began to receive uh, calls and emails from a wide variety of people. One of them was Vitaly Arkhengelsky, who has a, is, is fighting against uh, Valentina Matvienko, the former governor of St. Petersburg in the courts. And we arranged with Vitaly to get the full information, which he was happy to provide, about his, his, his long fight with uh, Matvienko in the Bank of St. Petersburg. But there were others as well, and I met with them. In some cases, they, it, they it, the, the, uh, the trail didn't lead anywhere, but in many cases it did. Valery Morozov was in London, and Valery had uh, a huge cache of documents uh, about his uh, efforts to fight corruption in the construction of the Olympic facilities in Sochi. We also went to Ukraine, and uh, with the overthrow of Yanukovych and the uh, retrieving of so many of the documents of the Yanukovych regime. There's abundant information there. I'm friendly with the people on the Kyiv Post who uh, are promising to help and others who are promising to help. There is an active investigative effort on the part of journalists in Ukraine, especially young journalists who understand that their future depends on breaking the hold of this kleptocratic system. The Ukraine really doesn't have a path forward if it continues to be mired in the kind of corruption that exists there now. And uh, uh, they are working with us, and I hope we'll uh, expand their 
uh, cooperation. Uh, with that, I'll just want to include one very quick memory of mine uh, concerning the cooperation between the uh, organized crime and the, and the regime. When I, uh, 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 I this is the, the, the period, I am now persona non grata in Russia, but it's actually the second time that I was persona non grata. I was persona non grata also during the 1980s and up until the time that Glasnost and, Gore and, and Perestroika had reached a point where they were letting in absolutely anyone, and then they also let me in. But but at that time, <laughs> at that time, I was a little out of date. I, I I knew the Soviet Union. I hadn't quite gotten my mind around the new Russia, and I I uh, I asked a guy who was a researcher in Yekaterinburg why why the government wasn't doing anything to prevent this criminal take you know the 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 the, the, the takeover of the country by these gangs, and he said, well, you know, it's hard to fight against yourself. And, uh, you know, that remark, which was made in actually 1991, struck me as the absolute quintessence of cynicism. It was only later, uh, and actually fairly soon, that I understood it was an absolutely accurate depiction of reality. Actually, I think I want to do one thing with your permission. May I tell a brief story now, or do we have time for it? No? All right, I, there, I, I, I hesitate because there are a couple of people in this audience who I know who actually have heard this story. So I'm going to ask them, but there are a lot of you who haven't. <laughs> and for those who have, they're gonna have to, I'm going to ask their permission. But uh, you know, I was friendly with a guy uh, in Moscow by the name of Doug Steele. He was a Canadian who ran a bar called The Hungry Duck. And... Uh, the Hungry Duck was a remarkable bar, and Doug was an extremely creative guy. And one of his innovations was ladies' night, which always ended up with a lot of women taking off their clothes and dancing on the bar. And Doug told me that he never asked anyone to take off their clothes, but he never did anything to prevent it either. And uh, the Hungry Duck was a popular gathering place for FSB, MVD, uh, tax police, all of the uh, who, who used to go there for the foreigners, for the liquor, for the prostitutes, for the young girls who weren't prostitutes, uh, for at least temporarily. And uh, uh, I met a guy there named Timofey, who was worked for the Ministry of Internal Affairs checking on banks. He was a phenomenal bribe taker. And uh, uh, he, uh, he had a girlfriend who was a stripper, and he spent $4 million on her before she dumped him. And he was one of the rare people who was removed from his position because of corruption. Well, the years went by. Medvedev became the, the, the new Russian president, and he announced a war against corruption and a new agency that was going to fight against corruption. And I ran into Doug Steele on the street. And he said, how you been? So on and so forth. We were glad to see each other. He said, hey, Dave, you're never going to guess who's the new head of the anti-corruption agency. <laughs> I said, who could it be? He said, do you remember Timofey? <laughs> I said, no, it's too much, <laughs> even for Russia. <laughs> 
I said, you mean the one who spent, the, who wasted $4 million on that stripper? <laughs> That's right. He's going to fight corruption. <laughs> So anyway, that's so none of this. It's in a, you know, it really is an alternative universe. But any, uh, but I suppose you all want to ask questions. So why don't we? Uh, <laughs> with that, with that. Uh. All right. Do we have a microphone circulating? Also, great. We have two microphones. Oh, three two microphones, microphones ready. No, the gentleman, uh, Vika, the gentleman in the second row, please. We'll start there. Howard Marks, thanks for your presentation. It's very nice to see David here, a former colleague of mine in the world of journalism. This is an amazing project, and I salute the Hudson Institute for its efforts in doing this. Um, uh, my question is about open sourcing. So as a former investigative reporter myself, I know it's a big deal when someone puts at risk of their careers, maybe even their lives, to provide uh, documents that here in the West might be considered to be open, but elsewhere are state secrets. So I saw that you have a place on your site for the, the um, sort of the uptake of those, uploading of those documents, but obviously when you have a totalitarian regime, you have them also controlling internet service providers and they could trace easily <coughs> those sorts of things. What, 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 what are you hoping and, and, and how are you gonna get around those obstacles? So people that are in Russia today that wanna cooperate can do it in such a way that they won't put their livelihoods or their lives or their families at risk. Thank you. This, this is an age-old age problem which goes back to the Soviet Union and uh, contemporary Russia. Generally speaking, uh, Russians themselves, when they, when they make a decision to uh, cooper cooperate, they, them, they, they understand the risks and they also understand to a great extent, how to protect themselves. Uh, the uh, if the documents once they once they reach uh, us are carefully protected, and if the conditions that these sources uh, impose are honored, uh, the, this is the best way to 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 prevent you know. Uh, retaliation against people, but no, no, no system is, 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 is foolproof, of course. Many of those who, are, who, who will be providing documents are those with grievances. In many cases, there's a, there, there's a certain category of person in Russia and in, in Ukraine or in any of these corrupt countries who has reached the point where he's ready for anything and he just wants his story, to his or her story to be told. Many of uh, and and we 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 experience that phenomenon as well. But obviously, it's a very very important uh, consideration to do everything we can on our side to make sure that no one's who whose identity needs to be protected is in any way compromised. I don't think they will be under the because those nothing goes nothing goes online and thus becomes known to the Russian authorities until all of the relevant security considerations are satisfied. Uh, 
I'm Nellie Orr, Plessis Experts Network. I have a question about this, what looks like a wonderful source for certain categories of potential users in the American government, in law enforcement or in the intelligence community who might be restricted from viewing certain of these documents. For example, a law enforcement investigator, if they use the Panama Papers as the, its privileged information, attorney-client privilege, anything that flows from that is the fruit of the poisonous tree and can't be used in a court. And, um, and uh, intelligence uh, community members, depending on their security clearance level, certain of the WikiLeaks documents might be closed off to them. What do you recommend for how they could use this wonderful source uh, without um, causing problems for their own work? I think one of the uh, biggest problems in the US government is bureaucratic uh, walls, not legal barriers, that state doesn't share with CIA, CIA doesn't share with FBI. So having this available would at least be a place where everybody could go and say, okay, so somebody in the US government has this, somebody, <laughs> somebody knows about this, and this, this is, you know, it forms a basis, a basis for going forward. Um, I, I don't think that you can do anything about the fact that WikiLeaks is out there. And of course, they couldn't proceed with the prosecution on the basis of it. But that's not to say they can't proceed with policy on the basis of it. And that is a big objective here, is to proceed with policy. Yeah, I mean, also, you can be familiar with it. You can be familiar with it and understand. You know, just by reading it, reading a document can tell you a lot about where to go. Yeah, just to complete that answer also, I mean, we've presented uh, this project very recently to the FBI, the whole team that they brought in here, and they're very interested, and we're very interested in working with them and, and will going forward. We've also presented it to uh, various people at the State Department, both area experts and people in the uh, intelligence operations at the State Department. They're very interested in it. So we're, we're, we plan on working very closely with various elements in our government. I, I like to refer to it as our government than, rather than USG, as though it's somebody else's government. Other questions? Uh, the gentleman in the uh, green shirt, please. Thank you. Thank you. Paul Joyle. Um, in the, in the cyber realm now, one of the techniques being used to uh, identify exploits is to put a rewards system in place. Someone who's aware of a zero-day um, vulnerability can, can present that to the U U.S. government or to corporations like Microsoft and get a reward. Have you ever considered, now that this is coming online, to put together for those who are interested in participating a annual award for the most effective um, information provided to to the um, to the site. I think this could be um, first of all, it would be good for publicity, but it would also help um, those that uh, do come forward with some remuneration for the risk that they've taken. I have a first counter question, which is, are you paying for the champagne? <laughs> but otherwise, how would, how would we... Uh, I think this is take? a question for Charles, really. Well, uh, and, and, for, and for Julie, perhaps we'll uh, give Julie a mic on that. No, I think, I think it's a great idea, and we have to see 
how this develops. I mean, this project started very small, it was a small kernel, and then everybody we encountered thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So we devoted more and more time and resource to it, and now we're we actually have a, a new grant which is going to enable us to hire another person and we're going to expand it to other countries and we'll see where it goes uh, and what sort of organic traction it gets. And, and, and But that, you know, that would be something uh, uh, really well, one, a great idea. Yeah, I mean, there, there may be a lot of things that will grow up around this. We'll, we'll see how big it gets and, and what is warranted. I think the cameraman has a question. Voice of America Ukrainian service. Thank you for such a great presentation. I have two questions. Um, when it comes to Ukraine, as you followed, everybody knows that in Ukraine, and there are rumors that uh, Ukrainian politicians are being you know, heavily corrupted. The first question is, do you have anyone from current Ukrainian government in that database? And the second question would be more broadly, uh, again, most of Ukrainians do know that politicians are corrupted. So what? What differs you, that site, from WikiLeaks, Ukrainian websites, and Panama Papers? Thank you. It would be up to Peter, I think, to answer the first question. Is there anybody in the current Ukrainian government in the... Well, the, we, we showed, we led with the... Yeah, Orshenko. Yeah, with the president when we showed that. I, I would say there I'd like to just uh, dig just beyond the um, kleptocracy archive itself because if you look at what we're doing more broadly and everything we're doing more broadly is highly plugged into this archive project operationally and otherwise. Uh, on the Ukrainian front, I would start uh, by referring you to something that we published a um, long time ago in, I think, uh, January... February of uh, 2014, yeah. uh, no, I'm sorry, 2015, uh, a, a piece by Ben Judah, the remarkable young British journalist who wrote the book Fragile Empire about Russia, but then spent a lot of time in Ukraine uh, on the ground talking to, ordinary, to, to, to you know, regular people. Um, and uh, he found that the average Ukrainian was highly aware of Western complicity in terms of the grand corruption going on in Ukraine. I mean, you take a guy like Firtash, <coughs> he owns homes in, uh, in the UK, he gives money to Cambridge University, et cetera. So what we're really trying to focus on in terms of Ukraine, and we want to really put the pedal to the metal on Ukraine, because I say it really is the front, is to look uh, and really shine the light on Western enablement of the grand corruption in Ukraine. And of course, as you know, Firtash uh, is, a, is a wanted man in terms of uh, US law enforcement. He's hanging out in Austria. Uh, but uh, there's a lot more that needs to be done there. And this problem of enablement, of Western enablement, uh, of grand corruption in Ukraine is, of course, a general problem for the whole kleptocracy issue in general, be it Russia, be it China, be it Azerbaijan, be it any number of authoritarian kleptocracies around the world. And that's actually a big, big focus of our program. So in Ukraine, we hope to have more Ukrainians in there, but also more non 
people who are not from kleptocratic countries, but who are enabling and providing the temptation. We have someone in the audience here from the Moldovan embassy. When we were discussing this, he came up with the word temptation, which I think is a very good word to think about in terms of the way that we incentivize kleptocracy by providing the punch bowl, the real estate that we're letting people buy, uh, and uh, interests in our businesses and, and all that, and of course allowing them to undermine our our norms and uh, and values, but that's going a little beyond that even. So we will do a lot more in Ukraine, and yes, we will see more, and in particular about the way we are enabling this. <laughs> Uh, David Kramer with McCain Institute. I uh, want to congratulate the three of you and Julie and Peter on uh, on rolling this out. It's a fantastic initiative, so my uh, kudos to all of you. My, my question is about what you were just describing, Charles, the enablers, um, and wanted to see if there might be an element of this to shine a light on some of the lobbyists and others in this city who work for some of these people. Um, shine a light on some of the think tanks that maybe get funding or give awards to people like Piotr Avin for corporate leadership. Uh, and I saw Piotr Avin's photo uh, among the individuals you had listed. So wondering if there might be some way to shed more light on th these individuals are entitled to legal representation if they're facing charges in the U.S. They're not entitled to representation by lobbyists and others, though they can get that by paying them off. Just curious what you might think of that. Thanks. Well, uh, uh, yeah, Karen, Karen, why don't you uh, both take that and then I'll... Yeah. Well, I'll take part of it anyway. Yeah. Uh, so the contribution of the kleptocracy archive is both to identify uh, and shape the discourse uh, in, in Russia, Ukraine, or other kleptocratic regimes to provide um, support for arguments made by civil society in those countries, but also, I think, to shape the arguments in, in, the, in Washington, D.C., clearly. It just becomes much more difficult for someone to make a claim that X is not proven when you have 3,000 documents. And it, 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 the, the proof then shifts to them. Well, tell us what is in these documents that would lead you to believe that this is a regime that is uh, honest and capable of, of doing business in an open way. And I've been very struck with the extent to which people in Washington, D.C. are increasingly worried about accepting money, aware of its dangers, and of its reputational risks for them. I mean, I, I, I can tell you absolutely that people at Kennan, not all, but some people at Kennan are very embarrassed. And when you give an award to someone who is in the kleptocracy archive, or you accept money for funding a program on Ukraine from somebody who is the problem, then it becomes more difficult to say that you really are just about thinking. <laughs> what is the think tank actually doing? 
And this is, this, is, this is a problem that the UK has in spades, but unfortunately, it is the United States, and it's our concern in Washington, D.C., to, to take care of our, the cleanliness of our own politics and of our own public space. And it, it really is going to behoove people who take money to exercise their own due diligence. Uh, I can tell you from talking to friends in, in UK, Oxford and Cambridge are going to have a lot of trouble over accepting Firtash and Blavatnik money uh, and Avid money. So people need to think about that very carefully. David, do you want to comment on this? Well, it's, uh, it's more than just uh, hiring representation, uh, which you're able, you're legally able to do, but many of many of the uh, there, uh, for example, the the think tank I referred to earlier, uh, where the person who was referring to the personality clash between Obama and Putin, uh, is is also su supported surreptitiously uh, uh, by uh, by Russian sources. And uh, there are many people who are commenting on Russian affairs, for example, from, the, from Kissinger Associates. When Kissinger does a huge business with Russia, uh, his, his, his colleagues and uh, the people who work for him are not in a position to give unbiased commentary about what's going on in Russia. Kissinger himself is not in a position to do that, not until he divests himself of his economic interest. So uh, it's really a very important, uh, uh, a really important, and pe people, people have, lo have lost uh, in Washington, in Russia, of course it goes without saying, the idea of conflict of interest doesn't even exist. But here uh, it's also true that um, uh, many, pe many people in our world the think tank world, the world of policy and foreign policy, uh, don't understand the extent to which they are obliged to be truly uh, unbiased and, and, and truly uh, untainted by any kind of financial interest when they give advice on important questions that affect the security of the country. But um, that is, uh, you know, if the kleptocracy initiative uh, and the archive do uh, nothing more than to uncover a lot of those links. They'll already will already be doing a lot. I, I, this is a huge problem, of course, that the questioner has, has touched on. It's it's very distressing. I mean, uh, in terms of Hudson, Hudson doesn't take any money from foreign governments. A lot of think tanks in D.C. take money from governments that we consider to be absolutely kleptocratic uh, and who are, who are very openly trying to influence U.S. policy. It's interesting that there isn't more of a backlash against this. There has um, been some. There's and been they, some. they claim, of yeah. course, it doesn't affect their research. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe, the, you know, it's, it, 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 it uh, uh, it reminds me of a remark that somebody made in the Soviet times. They said to you know to su suggest to you that you're you're saying these things for money is actually uh, paying you a compliment. I mean, 
I, I hope you don't really believe what you're saying. <laughs> and they're not saying it because you truly... <laughs> the, 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 the way in, in which they, they manipulate people is, is, is a science. Anyway. Right, we, I think we have the uh, gentleman in the red tie towards the back. There's a, there's a mic. We have that, and then we'll we'll take this question. Then we'll have time for ju uh, just one or two more, depending on how long we run. It's it's now ten fifty nine. We started late, so we'll run just a few minutes late, if that's okay, till eleven o four, eleven o five, and then we'll break break then. Thank you, uh, Jeff Goldstein, Open Society Foundations. If a researcher is looking for a particular document that's not in your archive. Do you have any ability to look for specific documents, or are you completely dependent on sort of what comes in the front door? It's going to be, we, we don't have any facilities right now to look for documents for people, but we're, we're trying to, uh, maybe someday in the future. There are places, by the way, that do. The Slavic Research Service at the University of Illinois, which is not, not that well known, but is excellent for that. Uh, but uh, if it's if it's something that's been published, but uh, right now, I mean, the the emphasis will be on gathering materials, not and in the hope that those who are conducting research, of course, will find what they're looking for. Actually, Julie Davidson wants to comment on that, and yeah, I, I you know, if you are microphone, please. Yeah. If you are looking for something. Uh, and we don't have it. We would be interested in knowing what you're looking for. We may ha we may know, uh, as David mentioned, a way to find it. But we may al it may also be something that we want to acquire. Yeah, I think that just to com complete that, if it's if it's an area or a particular thing that we're interested in, we are going to be extremely interested in, in perhaps pursuing it. And of course, that will depend on priorities and available staff. But uh, we are extremely open to. Suggestion. I, I would say also that if you know what you're looking for, it would be worth contacting KI because in addition to the documents here, they've also subscribed to Integrum, which is an extremely powerful uh, Berlin-based um, database. Well, database, we'll also database. Database uh, for Russian sources. Yeah. Well, also, and it's really good. Yeah, and we'll also always have a ton of inventory that hasn't been put out on the shelf yet. So what, the, what you're looking for may, may be in that inventory, and we just haven't had time to process it. Integrum, by the way, is available at the Library of Congress. Okay. Um, All right, so we're going to take two last questions, the gentleman over there, and then the lady in the green dress in the front row, and then we will, uh, we will wrap up for today. Thanks. Very quickly, Joe Krauss with the One Campaign. Charles, you mentioned that your, your goal was to make this broader than Russia and the Ukraine. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit more about your plans for rolling that out, but then also about how you're doing outreach and educating people in kleptocratic countries that this actually exists and that there's a place where they can provide documents. Thank you. Sure. Why don't we take the uh, second question, and then we can sort of split uh, put all this up. Chalupa with the NDCC. Um, is there documentation that you've seen that has an influence on this presidential election in the U.S., like specifically Paul Manafort, whose last successful campaign he ran was Yanukovych's and who currently um, is leading Trump's campaign? All right. Well, I'll, I'll just answer those very quickly, and then Karen and David will complement whatever I say. And then, So the answer to the second question is yes, and uh, uh, we're working on it, and we're actually working on it with various journalists. Um, 
uh, I don't think there's too much to add to that. The first question, so uh, now if you look at our website too, you'll see that we did a lot of work on China initially. And then, um, then Z, uh, sorry not to use his full name, started this anti-corruption campaign and he confused everybody for a while. And we also lost the person who'd been working on China for us to a higher paying job in San California in walking distance of her apartment, which is a little hard to compete with. So between Z and that, we were sort of a little bit in hibernation on China. And we actually have a new person going to be starting uh, on China. We're going to reboot that. Uh, so uh, until the anti-corruption campaign, uh, we considered Z Z's uh, China, uh, the Chinese re regime to be very much a kleptocracy. Instead of one person in a mafia state kind of style, you had a whole, you know, seven, seven people, this whole Politburo standing committee. If you go on our website, kleptocracyinitiative.org, you'll see this wonderful uh, diagram that is a little out of date, but you can click on any of those seven members and it'll explode a sort of network diagram of their relatives and the business, main business interests and all of that. So you really, we clearly had a very strong element of kleptocracy in China and also with this notion that a lot of that, a lot of the uh, the, the assets and funds that are being accumulated are going outside of China into uh, the same you know, places, into London and New York and real estate and Vancouver um, and uh, into all sorts of um, uh, businesses all over the place. And as you probably have heard in your work, which I'm a little familiar with, the British Virgin Islands are very popular with the Chinese, uh, et cetera. So we're, we want to have uh, uh, more in China in this. And then also other countries where we see the uh, networks of kleptocracy emanating from the most powerful countries that are really trying to undermine freedom and democracy and our whole way of life, as that branches into all sorts of other countries. Because it really, you sort of see, it's sort of one animal or one uh, tree root structure that keeps extending itself. So if we go into certain other countries, we're going to find a lot of uh, uh, Russian uh, influence and uh, and a lot of the same people involved in criminality and uh, and uh, kleptocratic activity across the board. So that's that's sort of. Uh, I hope that answers your your question, David, Karen. Do you want to add anything? And then um, and I think we'll uh, call it a day. Well, so the only thing I can add is that I hope that all of you will spread the word and contribute documents yourselves and uh, uh, take a look at the site and uh, see if you have any suggestions for improving it. Oh, well, I would add a little bit. If, uh, if you want to look at people involved in political campaigns, look at who Trump was involved in in building Trump Soho. Victor Sacker ended up wearing a wire for the FBI, and his father was the head of the Russian mafia in Brighton Beach. And uh, Bill Clinton has taken planes and collected money for the foundation from very kleptocratic regimes or business interests in those regimes. So this is this is a a, a big problem. This isn't this is not a uh, this person is is to blame and this person is clean. This is a big problem. Kleptocratic money. It, at the heart of our body politic. 
Well, thank you all for coming. Just before we break, just one last thing. We have an event this coming Friday at noon, if I'm not mistaken, which is not a kleptocracy initiative event, but it's related because it's about David Satter's new book. Um, and he'll just say a very quick word about that before we break. Uh, I'm, I, I have a, uh, a new book about this, the fate of Russia and uh, in the post-communist era. And we'll, it's, the publication date is May 24th. But on Friday, we will uh, present it here at Hudson. And I hope uh, all of you will at least consider coming. I would love to see you all. And it's at noon. At noon. At noon yeah. this, this coming Friday. All right. Well, <laughs> All right. Well, thank you all, all for right, coming. Thanks. Thank you.